0: This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to atomicbooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds.
1: It's just so like doo, 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 just so it's really crap, it is crap, but it works, it really works. It's it's really basic. Uh and the vocal I really identify with what uh, the singer what is vocal, uh because he's got the same accent as me. Uh but also um you know it's it, it's not very educated, it's not very clever. You know, uh, all of these things I can relate to. This
0: is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them, songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general.
2: Bow, 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 bow. I'm not I didn't think the wood was fly tipping down and the sheer wood The Clink of strong green and strong drink racing, green crank Victorian sinks and flushed it to system I can't swim so I sink The moves a curve It makes a bag stink
0: Our duo from Nottingham, UK, have reaffirmed the notion that music can be angry and abrasive, yet inspiringly so, even for audiences who are jaded to such emotions, and even when made by people who don't fit the traditional mold of what angry, visceral rock musicians should be. 51-year-old singer and polemicist Jason Williamson's lyrics are indeed angry, but not aimlessly so and not in an uninformed or immature way, instead taking direct, cogent aim at class politics in the UK, the disingenuous, and the power structures that run the world. Coupled with bandmate Andrew Ferns' electronic backing tracks, Sleaford mod spiritually hearken back to the earliest and most exciting days of UK punk, but in a completely authentic, fresh, and highly credible way. This audio clip of their song, Middlemen, from their 2014 performance at the La Guess Who Festival in Utrecht, Netherlands, is a potent example of what they're capable of. The first song Williamson chose as being formative for him was Psycho Killer by English Dogs.
2: Psycho Killer on the loose again, demented brain in constant pain.
1: This was part of an EP for uh, that came out. I think it's about 1984, uh, called uh, Mad Punks and English Dogs, and it was uh, a sort of second wave punk band from my hometown of Grantham, uh, which uh, caused a little bit of a uh, got a bit of traction actually uh, in the music world around that time. Do you know what I mean? Uh, they were one of the more Formidable second wave punk bands, along with the likes of GBH, um, Discharge, although Discharge are probably bigger, uh, and uh, you know stuff like that. So uh, yeah, and what really gets me about this song, in fact, the EP and and English Jogs in general is, you know, to to a lot of people it's probably shit, but uh, I mean this this is uh, this is really awe inspiring stuff for me it's it's just it's just balls to the wall it's just it's totally got its feet on the ground it's it's you know you couldn't get better street music in my opinion
0: so what was going on with you in your life at that at the time that you heard this
1: i was like i was uh well actually i only really heard this like 20 years later 25 years later you know 30 years later probably uh, yeah, it, it kind of got me then really because I was getting into a lot of uh, sort of second wave punk the trashier side of things you know the classic mid 70s punk in England punk rock fine yeah brilliant but uh, I was getting more and more uh, uh, sort of interested in the kind of like you know sort of even, you know, crapper version of punk, you know what I mean? uh, Which I would consider to be the second wave, you know, it was was faster, it was a bit more metal-y sounding. Uh, The lyrics were very, very uh, uh, sort of, you know, a bit cheesy, do you know what I mean? Everyone was in leather jackets and Moeekens, do you know what I mean? This was, um, you know, it it kind of, the sheer honesty of it really, really struck me, you know?
0: So at this, so you said it was twenty years on. So this would have been the early part of the I, century.
1: Yeah, I was getting more and more into punky stuff around two thousand three, two thousand four, uh, alongside hip hop sort of East Coast sound, the classic East Coast sound, and um, I was starting to look at that as a, uh, uh, a, you know, a plate of inspiration as opposed to the usual rock and roll and absolutely rinsed guitars, drum, bass, singer, sort of 60s R&B sound that I've been, um, so, uh, occupied with previously.
0: So really you, that was the point at which you'd been listening to just traditional more, you know, mod stuff, jam, uh, stuff like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, the jam aside, really, I think they're still very good, the jam, but yeah, I was listening to loads of old stuff. Like everyone was sort of midnight is early night is onwards. Um, and it got a little bit too much really i think uh, it kind of it ate itself uh you know sort of uh, kind of imploded you know what i
0: mean uh, very much so and it's funny you use that phrase it's one of my favorite band names i really don't know much about the band but pop will eat itself is still one of my ah, yes yes just it's yeah. just, it just speaks volumes it's absolutely true <laughs> um, yeah. so were you you were playing at this point yes and in, in what in, what kind of band were you playing in
1: I was playing in like sort of R and B ish sort of small faces type acts. And, mm-hmm. uh, then I moved on to like kind of more trippy, psychedelic, folky stuff, Terry Callier, that kind of thing. Uh, David Axelrod type stuff. Do you know what I mean? Sort of, you know, um, hip hoppy, but you know, a little bit atmospheric, very retro sounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, but, yeah, you know, I just got sick of it all. You know, everyone was doing it the same thing, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, it just didn't seem to me to be inspiring anymore, you know.
0: So how did did, did this change your own playing then or your own um, outputs with your band? Did you quit the band? What happened?
1: Gradually. Gradually. It took ages, years, you know, years of stumbling around trying to find something decent and you know eventually i kind of landed on the formula for sleep of mods but that was you know kind of pushed to the forefront more so with hearing stuff like english dogs and uh you know all the other artists that we're going to talk about uh uh tonight do you know what i mean
0: Mm -hmm. what was it about this song in particular out of you know anything from that second wave of of UK punk that really stood out for you?
1: It's just so like, just so it's really crap. It is crap, but it works. It really works. It's, it's really basic. Uh, and the vocal, I really identify with what uh, the singer, what is vocal, uh, because he's got the same accent as me. Uh, but also, um, you know, it's, it's not very educated, it's not very clever, you know. Uh, all of these things I can relate to, you know. And um, uh, it just works, it's just really, really catchy as well, you know. Uh, and that first EP, the cover of it, the photo of them, they stood against the garage door, they just look great, you know. Um, really sort of, yes...
0: It's interesting that you say that because it seems almost in reverse where people start out with the more, you know, attracted to the more primal stuff and then their tastes get refined and Mm. they become more interested in the refined things. And maybe that happened with you in other ways, but the way you're describing it, it's very, to me, sort of counterintuitive, which I think is really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think because I think sort of like the 80s, you know, the mid 80s, early 80s onwards. People really despised that synthesizer sound, especially my people at school. Really despised it, and they longed for that kind of jam. You know, the jam with a big band at school. Everyone loved Paul Weller. You know, that was where it at, was at. But when put, when the jam split up uh, and he formed the Star council and kind of took a step back, then you got all this new romanticism that came in uh, with all these bands, which sound, they all sound great now. You know, but at the time it was hated and people longed for that authentic sound. So then you got that again back in the early 90s. Uh, bands like the Lars, obviously the Stone Roses, uh the Real People, uh, etc., coming out and sort of reminding people of that sound that they yearn for, you know what I mean? But although that was great at the start, it just it just imploded as we as we talked about earlier. And so um I found myself banging my head against the wall but with tedium, you know. It was just everyone was either the new Rod Stewart or the new Whatever you know, it's just it was just so tedious. Uh, and so, so and so yeah, and, and so it it probably is no surprise that I went back into stuff like that. You know,
0: in in you know, call it eighty three, early eighties. I think we're about the same age, like early fifties. Uh-huh. Um, did uh so? Where were you? What were you listening to at that time when this actually was recorded initially?
1: Uh, I was at school. I was pure jam. You know, Motown Star Cancel. Uh, I like the Star Council as well, Northern Soul, um, just stuff like that really, you know what I mean?
0: And at that time were you in bands, were you playing, were you doing no, aspirations?
1: I did, yeah, but I never really got um never really got as far as getting a band together, you know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, the? and and this may come up presumably in the other songs you're going to talk about, but I'll go ahead and force the issue now, that evolution that began there, you said it was gradual from this point on, you kept pushing out, pushing forward, finding something that wasn't tedious and that everybody was doing, and you did land on this, as you put it, the formula for Mm -hmm. Sleeper Mods, Uh um, which is a fascinating formula and highly effective and i'm also as someone in a band extremely jealous of how spartan and portable it is in every respect too um Uh, because you're not nobody's lugging around drums or a lot of amps yeah um but how can you tell can you kind of go down a little further down the road there um with when you as it gradually evolved from this moment on in the early 2000s and Mm -hmm. as you kept pushing outwards
1: yeah i just i just i I started to realise that my voice suited this stuff better, you know. Although I can sing, it was also it was just also obvious and cheesy and like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to write Ambags and glad rags. Somebody else has done that, you know. I'm not going to write tin soldier. Somebody's done that. I'm not going to write. I can't get no satisfaction. Somebody's done that. Why Why bother trying to emulate that? And so you began. You began to sort of, you know, gnaw away at your own, uh, you know you began to sort of devour yourself, so to speak. And um, when I sort of discovered stuff like uh, early Wu-Tang, English Dogs, uh, Two Lone Swordsmen, Mike Skinner's first album, The Streets, um, it got me thinking about approaching stuff like that and realising that perhaps my voice suited stuff like that more than what I'd been doing previous, you know. And so I started to gradually immerse myself into that, you know, and try and learn a new set of skills, performative skills, you know.
0: It's a wonderful feeling, isn't it, when you do find that voice, when you finally find it? Yeah,
1: Um, yeah, yeah.
0: And how was the response when you all initially began playing out doing what you did How, did it was there an immediate click or you just did you feel it in yourself first and there was also an immediate response from the audience or was it that uh, was it more gradual for the audience to to, to plug into what you're doing
1: uh oh it was i was on my own really i met andrew five years later with Sleaford. you know he came on board sort of five years after i'd started it but yeah i was i was i, was, I had that eureka moment and um I couldn't believe the demos that I'd done, you know. Uh, I had a sound engineer, Simon, who helped me out, uh, and uh, an old friend who I'd met in various other projects. And I would just sit there in the house, whatever house, I can't remember where I was, renting a bedsit somewhere, in absolute wonder at what what I'd done, you know. Uh, And uh, it kind of just went from there, do you know what I mean? I just started to... um, yeah just refine
0: that so to speak it's interesting from my perspective over here amongst my social circle how you did you know in a a very small underground way but sort of explode um all of a sudden everybody knew who you were yeah um, as a band and it was interesting and actually i was revisiting the video that took me there which is that guess who performance Oh, right okay yeah which I a friend of of, of ours a friend of my of, in my social circle had I remember him posting oh. that and I remember thinking interesting name for a band and putting it on and thinking oh. like, as usual with a YouTube video you watch like 10 15 seconds and yeah. oh, I've yeah. probably seen it a hundred times now and I watched it today <laughs> um but I did have that feeling you're describing of just like this is so it's so fresh and and you would clearly this is just falling into fanboy stuff by the way I'm probably not we gonna include this. But it's just, uh, that performance just, uh, it's just so amazing to watch people absolutely in their element and have found their voice and, and it is just a treasure. I Just one of my favorite things.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I was really convinced with it, but it took ages, you know. Uh, it really did take a long time for to get other people into it (laughs) but hey but I was really concerned with the performance I was concerned with the material I was concerned with what I was doing the mechanics and I've had my eureka moment you know as we were just talking about my self-identity and finally connected to this passion I had with music and um, the both of the things uh, entwined and uh, yeah it was uh, it was brilliant you know
0: The second song Williamson chose is essential to his formation as an artist was Guillotine by Raekwon.
2: Ha. 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 Allow me to demonstrate the skill of Shaolin, the special technique of shadow boxing. <laughs> <too good. Poisonous. laughs> Poisonous poisonous paragraph smash if on the graph in half it'd be the inspector jack on the wall path first class leaving mites with a cast Causing ruckus like the aftermath on guns blast Run the burn will assaulter Rhymes running wild like a child in a walker. I scored from the inner slums abroad. And my thoughts are ready so I've seen the bike from the court. First criticize, but now they have become mentally paralyzed. What hits that I devise? Now I testify. The best desire every that's your highness. Blessed do electrify. We Yeah, Guillotine, Selfie's
1: first solo album. Uh only only built for Cuban links. Uh, and it's got Inspector Deck on and uh, I've not heard it for ages but I believe Ghostface is on there as well uh, it's just brilliant um, it's RZA I think RZA, I believe he produced it all or, or did the beats for it anyway um, it's just brilliant I mean I mean those solo albums kind of better than the actual main Wu-Tang albums in a lot of respects um, but yeah um, but yeah just just the uh just the relentlessness of the rap especially Inspector dex when he he's coming in just bang 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 it really really inspired me and I just I would sit there and listen to uh um the first wu-tang album and and uh only built for cuban links uh, obsessively trying to get uh trying to get an understanding of how they do it you know and the and the rhythms of it and to try and translate that, but not be gimmicky and certainly not, uh, you know, sort of nick their ideas uh, or their identities, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like, I am who I am. And it's like, I wanted to put, I wanted to try and make, I wanted, I wanted to get that inspiration and pull it over and, and make it tasteful, sound really good. And, and just from me, you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I didn't take these CDs off for a long time.
0: <laughs> Where were it? What, uh, what uh, year was this then you would have heard this one?
1: Uh, I got into this when I met my, uh, my partner, uh, my wife Claire. She, uh, I think I bought it around 2009 actually, so I was really late to it. But uh, I immediately became obsessed with it. Um, more so than enter the 36 Wu-Tang Chambers. Uh, You know, uh, and guillotine is one of the standout tracks for me, really.
0: So to go back to your own personal timeline as you developed um, Sleaford... This would have been a little further down the road, obviously, than 2003, than the last song you talked about. Yeah. Um, give us a snapshot of where you were with your development. Had you met – you said it had taken about five years before you met Andrew. Would Was yeah. it in the picture at this point?
1: He was, yeah. I'd met Andrew by this point. Uh, well, no, actually, I hadn't. I met. I didn't meet him until about 2010, so it was about a year before I met Andrew. Uh, so And I was working on my last solo sleeve of Mod album before I met Andrew called um, – as uh, Spectre skeptor <laughs> that's the rapper Spectre um, uh, so yeah and I, I was really influenced by uh, by that album in in doing uh, the last uh, Sleaford album on my own you know the last solo one anyway mm-hmm. Uh. so yeah it took about yeah it took another year or so before i met Andrew did uh, I I'm
0: Intimately familiar at being an, again a band myself, and have been working with at least one of the same people for thirty years. Uh-huh. It's a lot like a marriage and an ongoing conversation. Oh part. god, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. And and so I wonder how the initial, what the initial conversations were with Andrew, and I would, I would like in that stage too to to courting in a way. You know, you're getting you're kind of testing things out. Like, are who are you? You know, what do you believe yeah, in? Yeah. Um. So what what were the common touchstones for you and Andrew when you met?
1: We didn't really talk. I've just got to know him a bit. Um, It was more so, I was so, uh, I I got to the point where I thought I can't, because a lot of the Sleaford stuff was just sampled loops, early stuff, before I met Andrew. All of it was, most of it. I used to overlay guitar sometimes and drums, but that's it. Uh, But they were all nicked segments of music from great albums, you know. So that wasn't going to have any kind of a life uh, because of copyright, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So I needed more organic, homegrown music. And so um, the quest for that uh, proved to be really hard. (laughs) It's just, you know, you wouldn't think it would be that hard, but bloody hell it was. And then I eventually met Andrew by chance at a gig. Uh, And so we just got on with it. I was only interested in the music. I wasn't really interested in... Uh, talking about Andrew, and he wasn't t- interested in talking about me, really, you know. But we got to know each other gradually. Um, it was a natural thing, uh, and uh, you know, we, uh, we we you know, I've known him for ten years nearly now, and it is, as you say, like a bit of a marriage. You know what I mean? You you're constantly finding out about each other, um, but um, there was a lot of similarities in the sense that he was quite a lonely person quite uh uh you know uh he would spend a lot of time on his own and uh he was just had a one track mind with his music and when I talked to him about how he progressed through the years with his music it was quite uh it was quite incredible really you know he was solely dedicated to it uh and he'd lived his life uh in the pursuit of just simply doing music so uh I knew that if I could get it working with him it would it would be good you know
0: to extend that marriage metaphor a little bit, um, it, meaning that it's an ongoing conversation that that kind of keeps you know relationships together. What, <laughs> what, what this is well, this is what I was. This is advice my dad gave me. I remember a long time ago, and actually I found that to be true. Like it's an ongoing conversation. It doesn't have to be about one topic, but there's probably some theme. There's something that you still continue to have to talk about with your partner, and and again, this is extending the metaphor to to a creative situation. But um, what do you think if there's the the one thing that uh, what is that topic or theme that that keeps you and Andrew working together? If there's anything,
1: Uh, just humor, definitely humor, Uh, just taking the piss, you know, just having a laugh. He's got a real abstract sense of humor. And you know, it'll come out with some one-liners that are just brilliant. And then it will start me off and then that'll make him laugh. You know, So it's all about the humour, you know what I mean? And then um, apart from that, we don't talk too much about music. <laughs> we just get on with it because it's just like, I know that I've got very different views to music than Andrew has in a lot of respects. And so we don't kind of connect on a lot of it, but we do connect on the actual creation of it and also minimalism uh, and how to layer minimalism to keep it still sounding minimal. Uh, and also our hatred for the dusty old tools of yesteryear that that weigh so many bands down, you know, and um, what's the point, you know what I mean? Um so so yeah, all of those things really. And he's quite he can be quite angry. He's a quite angry guy when he wants to be in. And and so am I, you know. So you've got that as well, and you know, it's so these are the things that keep the relationship going, I think.
0: I think with my bandits we speak almost exclusively in Simpsons quotes, so I can relate. <laughs> um, usually from, you know, the mid nineties. So yes. I can relate completely. The final song Williamson chose was The Lurch by two lone swordsmen.
1: yeah somebody gave me this album to listen to in about when well, it came out I think 2004 I could have been earlier than that actually um but this was about and I could be wrong here as well so I apologise Keith if you're listening um I think this is about the fourth or 5th album they had done together Keith Tenniswood and Andrew Weatherall under the uh, under the um banner of uh uh two lone swordsmen um this one differed from the other albums it was uh it was more songy there was more real instruments on it uh and whether all he was singing for the first time ever um and um i was just completely taken by i'd never heard anything by Brian Eno. i'd never heard much post-punk uh i'd never heard any um uh, not really, you know. So on listening to this album, uh, Tales from the du- Double Gone Chapel, which is where the lurch comes from, um, I was I was kind of like really, oh, wow, I've never heard shit like this before. And so, um, yeah, it really took it really got me, the, the rumbling bass, boom, 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 and it connected me also to, to, to the bands like the English Dogs because they had a rumbling bass, you know, and it connected to me, that sort of stuff. So I wanted to, Drag that in, I started to think about that and started to think about dragging that into the music. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and it wasn't until I'd met Andrew that this kind of came about, really. I'd had these ideas of going really minimal, uh, uh, just with a bass and a snare drum and then some sound effects. You know, on this album, there's lots of fire alarms going off, doors opening, and, you know, on the, on the cover of the album, there's just a, a tea stain, a tea ring, and then a packet of cigarettes next to it. The imagery really inspired me as well. Uh, and so I wanted to try and bring this in, and that, that's what we started doing, really, just minimal sparse beats with bass underneath it. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's how it kind of, that's how, you know, and the rest is history,
0: this is the one song that uh, of your choices where I was instantly like, Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah sure, I can see the direct connection, sure. And... So, this so it seems that you're saying that, um, this sort of manifested what you were hoping to figure out for yourself, or at least an initial step when you heard it. Is that a good way of putting
1: it? Yeah, I mean, like, I always I was quite obsessed with Andrew Weatherall because he was very cool and he was very, um, you know. He was really—he was kind of off the radar, but but kind of influencing everything that was within the radar, you know. And it's like, yeah, I want to be like him, you know. So I got my tattoos when the band started getting somewhere. I had started getting my tattoos. I just wanted to be like Weatherall a bit, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, In 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 the sense of his, uh, you know his presence on the musical landscape and I want, I wanted to contribute like he did, you know? Uh, and, um, so yeah, that, that really moved me as well about the whole thing, you know?
0: Yes, absolutely. Did, um, so have you, you, you've come to know them on a personal level? I know.
1: Yeah. I met Andrew a couple of times before he passed away. Uh, uh, but Keith, I know a little bit as well. Again, Keith, brilliant. He's like, he was kind of like, did lots of all, I, I wouldn't like to say, because if he's listening, he'll kill me. But I think he did a lot of the musicianship, loads of the production, et cetera, et cetera. He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. You know, but he was kind of in the foreground even deeper, you know. Uh, but he's just a serious, you know, he's a serious techno geezer and everything else that he's into. You know, he just loves it. And, um, you know, I wanted to try and emulate that as well. I wanted to be that kind of a person I didn't want to be some cheesy rock star because that just doesn't last for two minutes. You know, I wanted to be those kind of people.
0: I think it's interesting. Um, and, and I relate to this very much. It, it, it goes back a little bit to what we were talking about, about finding your voice, but, um, the idea, I, I wonder what are, your experience would have been like with all of this. Uh, if for some reason you would found that voice maybe in your twenties, because I'm guessing from the math that you were maybe in your maybe mid thirties and then when you started to really find yeah, yeah, your way yeah, so how do, yeah. how do you think things would have been different or can you speak to the notion of just um i don't know i don't want to answer your question for you i'll go ahead
1: um uh yeah i think i probably wouldn't uh it, i would have i would have signed a really bad record deal and, and got in, got into a trap with retro music and released some mediocre singles that kind of made a little bit of a dent on the charts and you know, I don't think I'd have been very good, you know what I mean? Uh, but would that have led me to sleep at Malta perhaps? Who knows? You just don't know, do you? Um, you really don't know how you would have been. Uh, would, would earlier success have, have uh, would it have tamed me? No, I don't think it would because I've become even hungrier, I think, because you just want to, I think I've got a point to prove, you know, as well, you know, uh, and I, I really see it as a competition because there's so much shit out there uh, and you want to battle with, you want to do battle with that, shit, don't you? And you want to let that know that you think it's shit. And it's, these, these are things that are really important. So I don't know, you know, who knows?
0: I wonder, and I mean, this is my experience, uh, early hints at that sort of commercial success and then being rejected as you took left turns artistically it just made me more and more ornery and more like, well, f- you, I'm going to do this even more than I wanted to. And this is me and the guy that I've been working with for a long time. And it took us down and completely different path. And, and it led to less and less commercial success and interest. <laughs> but we've landed in a place, you know, in this in our uh, dotage here in our 50s where uh, we have found, you know, I think something kind of singular that we would have never found if we hadn't not only been, you know, met with a lack of traditional success, but, uh, you know, kind of flown in the face of it. So does that ring true for you as well?
1: It does, yeah. And it's like, I think that is more rewarding than the, uh, the, the, you know, the kind of uh, one-dimensional rewards that you get from, uh, you know, being a commercial success. And it is literally one dimension. It doesn't last very long. Uh, and you usually end up looking really fucking cheesy. Do you know what I mean? So, it is, yeah. But you know, we're constantly told that this this domain is where you should be, when really the creative side of things, the development side of things, is is, is the most satisfying, and it usually gives you the most rewards, not only within yourself but from other people as well. You know.
0: This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. To get in touch, get more information, or buy Essential Tremors merchandise, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.